gives me great pleasure to introduce to you our speaker for today, who everybody knows, but I'm going to tell you many things, <laughs> even though you probably know them. An educator, author, and activist, Lara Pulido is the Collins Chair and Professor of Geography, Indigenous, Ethnic, and Race Studies, and Latinx Studies at the University of Oregon. She's a qualitative social scientist who works at the intersection of geography and critical ethnic studies, especially Chicanics studies. Her areas of expertise include critical human geography, comparative and relational ethnic studies, environmental justice, cultural memory, political activism, uh, Chicanics studies, landscape, labor, and radical tourism. She has a very extensive list of publications. She co-authored uh, A People's Guide to Los Angeles in 2012. She is the author of the following monographs, Black, Brown, Yellow, and Left, Radical Activism in Los Angeles from 20, 2006, and Environmentalism and Economic Justice to Chicano Struggles in the Southwest from 1996. She co-edited and posthumously completed Clyde Wood's 2017 volume, Development, Drowned, and Reborn, The Blues and Bourbon Restoration in Post-Katrina, New Orleans. She has co-edited a, a number of texts, including Black and Brown in Los Angeles, Beyond Conflict and Cooperation from 2013, and Racial Formation in the 21st Century from 2012, which was co-edited by Dan Hosang, one of our former colleagues. She has many awards and honors. I'll just read you a few of them. Uh, distinguished Scholarship Honors from the American Association of Geographers, the Cullum Geographical Medal from the American Geographical Society, Faculty Excellence Award from the University of Oregon, the Harold Rose Anti-Racism Award from the Association of American Geographers, the Globe Book Award for Public Understanding of Geography from the Association of American Geographers, a Guggenheim Fellowship. She is also a co-PI on the Mellon Foundation's uh, grant for the Pacific Northwest Just Futures for Racial and Climate Justice Institute. And she has uh, uh, at least two National Science Foundation Research Awards in Geography and Spatial Sciences. Today, uh, as a 2022-23 OHC Faculty Research Fellow, Professor Polito will speak to us about her current project, Monumental Denial, U.S. Cultural Memory, and White Innocence. Please join me in welcoming Lara Polito. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, especially for coming on such a beautiful day. We'd all rather be outside and playing. Um, many thanks to OHC for um, their support, the opportunity to share my work. I also want to express my gratitude to so many colleagues and friends here at the U of O who have helped nurture this work over the, since I first arrived here. <laughs> so many of you have heard about this in bits and forms over the years. Um, I would like to begin with a land acknowledgement which I know are really fashionable to do these days, we all do them, but much of my talk is about native dispossession and how we deny it. So I really wanted to call attention to the historical moment that we're living in, the historicity of the land acknowledgement. We are all on Kalapuya Ilihi, also known as Eugene, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Kalapuya Ilihi was home to the Kalapuya people before their land was taken by Euro-American settlers that were forcibly relocated to the Oregon coast by white settlers using a range of strategies, including the Oregon Donation Land Claim Act. Today, the Kalapuya are a part of the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde and Confederated Tribes of the Siletz Indians. They're active members of the community and remain caretakers of this land. The fact that I begin with the land acknowledgement reflects the moment we are living in. As we all know, the U.S. racial formation is undergoing profound changes. On the one hand, awareness of white supremacy and anti-racism is widespread. On the other, we're living through the latest chapter of white backlash. The backlash can be seen in numerous ways, including physical attacks against, against anti-racist activists, the mainstreaming of white nationalism, assaults on LGBTQ+, and declaring war on critical race theory. As of March 23rd, 44 states had introduced over 65, can you see it? Am I in the way? Am I in the way? Okay. <laughs> Didn't think about that. Is that better? Um, over 44 states had introduced 65 pieces of legislation uh, curtailing what teachers can say about race, 
In this map, the gray pentagon represents the states where no such bill has been proposed. These bills vary in their scope, ambiguity, and provisions. For example, some require that teachers tell both sides of racial issues. Others require that no one is made to feel discomfort when discussing the racial past. And still others, such as in North Dakota, prohibit teachers from presenting racism as anything other than individual biases. In other words, there's no such thing as structural racism. These debates about CRT are also debates about cultural memory. That is, how we choose to remember the racial past. Never would have I have imagined that such ideas would be banned, but that was naivete on my part, because even a cursory look at US history shows a deep investment in white innocence and a desire to preserve it at all costs. In this talk, I explore how US cultural memory represents white supremacy and colonization. First, I'm going to provide an overview of contemporary public discourse around cultural memory. Second, I'm going to talk about uh, white supremacy and denial, then uh, present my research questions and methodology, and then finally share some findings. So let's start with cultural memory. I define it as popular understandings of the past, which of course is distinct from actual history. Well, cultural memory has always been important, it has increasingly become a site of contestation. Arguably, the current wave began with Bree Newsom in 2015 when she climbed the South Carolina State House, for which she was promptly arrested. While this attracted major public attention, others have been quietly working on these issues for years. This is a slide here of the Equal Justice Initiative, and they've been working for over 20 years now of trying to document all the lynching sites in the southeastern United States. And this is a photo of Sandra de la Loza, a Chicana um, artist activist in Los Angeles who's gone around Los Angeles and trying to put up plaques um, telling the Mexican side of the Mexican-American War, you know, um, and, the, and the city then takes them down and she puts them back up. These activists and artists know that how we remember the racial past matters. They force us to question who and what we choose to commemorate and why. What purposes does hegemonic commemoration serve? And how can we disrupt hegemonic forms of commemoration? Historic commemoration is a powerful form of ideology. As Stuart Hall reminds us, ideology is a practice. It is generated, produced, and reproduced in specific settings. The current public engagement around cultural memory is unprecedented, I would argue. And easily, the top issue centers on who we commemorate. Activists challenge monuments and markers to colonizers and enslavers. This here is Robert E. Lee in uh, New Orleans, where they had to remove him at night, the statue, because of protests against it. And this is in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, a statue of Christopher Columbus, which had been defaced. Now, there's many reasons why people would oppose such forms of commemoration. They point out it's offensive to honor such individuals. They make people feel unwelcome. It does not reflect who we are today. And they're painful reminders of the past. Certainly, these are all valid concerns. The Mellon Foundation has recently adopted a two-pronged strategy that really decided to invest in this. They put millions into developing alternative commemorations focused particularly on the city and local levels. And so they're having these rounds with artists and activists can propose projects that are getting funded across the country. They've also put um, energy into analyzing US commemorative practices, specifically who and what we commemorate. Um, and this is a focus, uh, this focus on who we, who we should commemorate is what we call just representation. And this is the idea that historic commemoration should reflect the histories, accomplishments, and contributions of the population as a whole, not just a few. The Monument Lab conducted an audit, audit of 50,000 monuments, and we can talk about how they define monuments. But really, their work provides a snapshot of who and what we commemorate. It found that the vast majority of statues were dedicated to elite white men. 75% were slave were landowners and 50% were slave owners. Among the top 50 people commemorated, there were two black people 
Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass, two indigenous people, Sacagawea and Tecumseh, and there's three women, Joan of Arc, Harriet Tubman, and Sacagawea. There are no Latinx or Asian people. The audits also found that monuments misrepresent our history. For example, only 1% of Civil War monuments mentions the Civil War. Excuse me, it's mentioned slavery. This, this finding confirms many studies by geographers who have documented how historic sites in the South, especially plantations, represent slavery. This last finding was of great interest to me. I'm less interested in who we choose to commemorate, and much more interested in the collective stories that historic sites tell, particularly in terms of territory. Collectively, these stories create a narrative, or series of narratives, of the historical geography and territorial development of the United States. I argue that white supremacy and colonization are not only embedded in all historic sites, but that hegemonic commemorative practices routinely erase or deny such processes in order to preserve the white innocence. Now, I define white supremacy as a material distortion formation and an emanating idea and practice that whiteness in Europe are more valued than black indigenous and people of color and non-European places. No, no, I'm not saying that whites think they are superior. Well, many certainly do. Far more ways based is the unspoken act upon belief that whites are simply of real value. It's because, it's because they are greater value that their needs and desires are routinely taking precedence over the needs and desires of indigenous and people of color. What's supremacy ideology rooted in power? It is in a name on law that facilitates material processes such as socialization, centralization, slave slavery, empire, state formation, nation building, built to name but a few. As such, white supremacy is a spatial process that was fundamental to the development of the United States. There is simply no way to understand the territorial development of the U.S. outside of white supremacy. It is not possible to believe that countless people will be able to rely on so that the U.S. achieved geographic regeneration. I'm interested in how narrow those processes. Within the U.S. territorial development as a series of regional, racial, local projects in which the nation has created multiple stories to explain how this country came to be. According to Boyce Dixon, these stories are fantasies and truth. He writes, fantasies and centralization. American exceptionalism and manifest destiny are both fantasies that drove you as silent. silent. In attempting to carry out our fantasy, fantasy to realize your dreams, dreams Sarah Clarence will perceive their action, action as a performance of good works. works. Now, we'll just look at the evidence of fantasy and illusion. illusion. The question I mean to me is why. The answer I believe is why is one's innocence. According to Josh Johnson, we can define white innocence as practice of denying the fundamental race and continues to play by the southern state. He notes that the territory of white innocence goes beyond documenting denial. It also requires examining very categories of white, white, and white whiteness as a struggle process themselves. Remember, whiteness is not about the color, color, but rather a series of power relations and ideologies that we have created. Seen in this way, white innocence is central to white nation. Drawing on my name, Andrew Sanders and Samira Sivanabani, I define the white nation as an imaginary sovereign community in which white people and white and white are center-centered. Because, because whiteness white is a hierarchical, genocidal, and exclusionary category, its legitimacy requires the erasure of such violence. This entails the cultivation and maintenance of white innocence. I explore how white how the denial of white supremacy and colonization in U.S. military memory functions to preserve white innocence through the national landmarks. 
So let me move on now and talk to you about national landmarks. National landmarks are a particular kind of historic site. Um, landmark status is given by the National Park Service because the site, quote, represents an outstanding aspect of American history, culture, and embodies national significance. This is um, Salt Lake City, this is the place, and this is uh, the place, literally, where as Mormons were moving westward through the Rockies, and then they stopped um, just uh, at Salt Lake City in the valley there, and this is where Brigham Young was told by God, this is the place where you will settle and where you will create your new, your new civilization, right? And if you've ever been there, it is enormous. and commemoration to signify um, this is the place. Now, to achieve landmark status, an individual or organization must nominate a site and show how it is truly significant. This is not an easy process. It can take years of hard work and money, oftentimes including historic or archaeological surveys. But landmark designation opens the door to other forms of preservation support. Currently, there are about 2,600 landmarks in the United States. In this project, I ask several questions. First, what forms of white supremacy are inherent in the places and events commemorated by national landmarks? Second, how are various forms of white supremacy represented? Collectively, how do they narrate the founding, development, and expansion of the U.S.? And what is the role of white innocence in these processes? To answer these questions, we created a database of all landmarks. And here's the we. I actually didn't do it myself. Um, these are a whole variety of different people here from the U of O, um, so the grad students, and a lot of work from the people in the, U, um, in the infographics lab who I am deeply um, embedded to for all of their work. Um, so what we did is we coded all landmarks based on the nomination materials that were submitted when they were proposed. In addition, we then conducted uh, selective field work, which some of you here have contributed to. <laughs> and field work consisted of studying the landscape, exhibits, tours, docents, and literature to see how the racial past is narrated. I identified four different ways in which white supremacy is represented, four primary ways. And these are erasure, valorization, multiculturalism, and acknowledgement. I will explain each in turn. But it's important to point out that with the exception of acknowledgement, the other three, erasure, valorization, and multiculturalism, are all forms of denial. Okay? Now, altogether, 92% of all landmarks deny white supremacy and colonization. And let's drill down a bit into the different forms of denial. As you can see, I hope you can see, just over 80% fall into the category of erasure, all right? Now, erasure means complete silence on race and colonization. It is simply never mentioned, not even one sentence, all right? There is no acknowledgment of whose land this once was, of the struggles to make it part of the U.S., of the exclusionary, exploitive or extractive processes associated with the history of the site and its attendant geography. It is as if the site were part of a non-racial historical geography. Instead, the vast majority of sites focus on architecture, a whopping 47%. Another 15% are related to the military. Together, these constitute 62% of all sites. In contrast, according to the National Park Service, only 8% of sites pertain or mention people of color. What are we to make of such silences? Marita Sturkin has argued that such practices constitute forgetting. But this erasure is on such a grand scale that forgetting doesn't capture what is really going on here. I think the more appropriate term is denial. Denial on a staggering scale. Stanley Cohen defines denial as assertions that something did not happen, did not exist, is not true, or is not known. People typically engage in denial when the truth is too disturbing or threatening to be accepted. 
Kari Norgard, our colleague in sociology, argues that denial should be understood as a spectrum. In this case, erasure, valorization, and multiculturalism are all distinct forms of denial. Erasure, as I mentioned, is simply complete avoidance. In contrast, valorization is not just silence, but glorifying a narrative and landscape of denial. Multiculturalism is also a form of denial. Multicultural sites mention black, indigenous, and people of color, but deny systematic forms of racism and colonization. This is where my work is distinct from those advocating for just representation. And I want us to consider for a minute Sacagawea, she, who was one of the three women who actually is mentioned. She was a key figure in Lewis and Clark's expedition of westward expansion. She translated, was a guide, showed them food sources, and literally saved their lives on multiple occasions. Most commemorations of Sacagawea celebrate her contributions to building the U.S. nation and territory, which is why she's mentioned. Right? She is commemorated because she contributed to the U.S. <clears throat> expansion. Never is the dispossession of her people the Shoshone mentioned. And I, the, I have two images I want to share, which some of you may be familiar with. This is across the street from the Oregon Historical Society in Portland, which I'm sure a lot of folks have gone to, been there. And these are two murals that exist which are meant to display Oregon history. So the first one here really presents like these two parallel streams of Oregon history. On the one side here, we have um, the settlers, U.S. settlers coming, Western expansion with their, uh, with their wagons coming on down here. And on the other, we have indigenous history. And here, I hope you can see this image. We have an indigenous person, looks like they're handing something over to the white guy, all right? It's a document, parchment, map, I'm not sure what. But it clearly is an act of giving that is happening, all right? And I think it's extremely telling. The second one here, this, they're both bad, I apologize. <laughs> okay, so this is the other mural. And again, we have two parallel streams. And this is supposed to really be also an, another multicultural one. Here we have Lewis and Clark. And underneath Lewis and Clark, we have Sacagawea and we have York. Now, York was a black enslaved person that was forced to go, brought with brought with them on the Lewis and Clark expedition by his owner, all right? And we see lots of images to York actually around Oregon, growing numbers, and this is the dog. So um, this again is meant to provide a multicultural representation of Oregon. And I don't know what the thinkers were thinking when they did this, you know? <laughs> it represents a very particular kind of hegemonic understanding of Oregon history and multiculturalism, and I'm sure this was like a huge progress that they were even including these figures in these narratives of Oregon history here. Now, the final category of representation is acknowledgement. And these are sites that acknowledge the racial past in some way, however modest. All it required was one sentence. That's all it took. They challenged the white nation and its innocence by naming massacres, slavery, and other forms of racial injustice. Only 7.6% of national landmarks fell into this category. This is a vast landscape of denial. It is not accidental. Creating national landmarks requires deliberate, conscious efforts. As such, national landmarks are a powerful example of hegemonic cultural memory. As I suggested earlier, we engage in such denial in order to preserve white innocence. Currently, white, innoc white innocence is being questioned in an unprecedented fashion. This has given rise to a tremendous backlash what Carol Anderson calls white rage. Central to white rage is denial of the denial, if you will. But the, central, but the landscape is a powerful form of evidence. In the words of Pierce Lewis, landscape is our unwitting autobiography. So now let me share some examples of how white supremacy and colonization are represented. I start with erasure, because that is the most abundant form of denial. This is the assay building in Boise, Idaho. There were numerous gold and silver rushes throughout the West in the 19th century. Mining not only created tremendous wealth and brought settlers to what is now the Western US, but it also devastated indigenous homelands. 
and in some places like in Northern California cre created genocidal projects. This building is where the miners brought the rocks, metals, and minerals that they had extracted from the earth and converted them into cash. It now houses Idaho's historic preservation program. The plaque on the building reads, this is the old U.S. assay office, built in 1870 to 71, and said to have received more than $75 million in gold and silver through its doors, unquote. Consider the implications of this for racial capitalism. The transformation of nature into capital. The taking of indigenous land for mining and settlement. And not a word about settler colonization. Instead, there's a special exhibit on sandstone, which is, an abundant, uh, which is abundant in Idaho and an important building material. This is denial as erasure. The next category I consider is valorization. Now, valorization is, is a distinct form of denial and epitomized by the Alamo. The Alamo commemorates a battle in which Texans fought against Mexico in order to achieve independence. The Alamo, of course, is not just about Texas history. It should be seen as the opening salvo in the Mexican-American War, which lasted from 1846 to 1848, and in which the U.S. acquired half of Mexico's territory. The battle for Texas independence shows one way that settler colonization operates. In this case, U.S. settlers moved to Mexico and became Mexican citizens. They then chafed at Mexican laws and restrictions, especially in regard to slavery, and decided that they want independence. No sooner did they get it than they sought to rejoin the white nation. This is not a case of the U.S. state or military taking Mexican land. That happens in the Mexican-American War. This is a case of the settlers themselves leading the process, which has happened in many places throughout the United States. Now, as we all know, the Texans lost the Battle of the Alamo. So how does a site of loss become a site of valorization? First, it does so by erasing the true reasons for the battle. The Alamo is a shrine devoted to freedom and liberty. One of the signs reads, between February 23rd and March 6, 1836, gallant Texans, greatly outnumbered by General Santa Ana's army, defended the sprawling compound to the death. The Battle of the Alamo stands as a symbol of freedom throughout the world. So we have to ask, of course, freedom for whom? The Alamo represents an early case of white grievance, which has become so prevalent among the right today. The second thing happening at the Alamo is the site has a split personality. Inside is a sacred shrine. Um, <clears throat> the defeat is treated as a solemn, hallowed event. The suffering and loss, um, as Rose has argued, become vehicles for the purification of the cause and for the defenders. But on the outside, there's a celebratory aura. This is a fun place to celebrate Texas history. And I really like this photo here. This was taken by my former student, Tiana Bruno. And we see here what I'm guessing is a Latino couple right at the Alamo, um, getting their picture taken, kind of celebrating the whole thing, right? And I think it shows the pervasive nature of the Alamo. There's actually a part of the Alamo which was somebody from Japan made an art sculpture, and it's a gift to the Alamo talking about how this is so inspiring, you know, to Japanese people, you know, from, from Japan. So it really is, I mean, it's, it's a global phenomenon, right, um, the Alamo and the spirit of the Alamo, if you will. Now, the next category I talk about is multiculturalism, all right, next kind of form of denial. Now, to qualify as multicultural, sites simply had to mention a person of color. This is a very low bar, but still less than 8% <laughs> fell into this category. Mount Independence in Vermont commemorates a battle of the Revolutionary War. This is located on Lake Champlain, where British forces were entering from Canada into the Vermont Territory. And Vermont was kind of like Texas. It was its own republic before it became part of the United States. I didn't know that before this project. Now, a key battle was fought here, which brought US forces critical time to mount a powerful counterattack. 
The site includes a museum, picnic areas, and several trails with exhibits along the way. Even has these two guys who were very friendly along the trail. Uh, <clears throat> they were, they just walk around and they talk to people and try to, you know, for them it's a very meaningful in, uh, place as so, being so fundamental to the creation of the United States. Um, anyway, at this one exhibit I found, there was mention of indigenous people. And there were a couple of mentions of indigenous people at this place. And this is one of them. Even before the American army straggled onto Mount Independence in July 1776, People had left their mark on the land there. For thousands of years, Native Americans made tools out of chert, a black, fine-grained stone in numerous outcroppings on the mount, and traces of their industry may still be seen on the ground. Revolutionary War soldiers appear to have discovered and been fascinated by this ancient past. Archaeologists have found projectile points in some of the soldiers' huts. Now here we see Native peoples as firmly in the ancient past. Such an historical framing precludes any need to explain displacement and how this land actually came to be part of the U.S. I asked a worker about the indigenous people of the area, the Abenaki. Her response was, quote, well, there weren't any as far as we know. The Indians passed through this area, but there were no permanent villages here, unquote. Now, this was a common answer that I heard across the country. There were no Indians here, all right? Now, this form of denial I call spatial containment. Indians may have existed in some parts of the United States, but not here. The worker statement is a form of settler memory predicated on two ideas. First, it ignores the fact that Native people use large areas of land in different ways depending upon the season. Second, it indicates that only the only recognized forms, only recognized native presence are from settlements legitimized either by archaeologists or found in the English language archive. This is a convenient way of denying processes of displacement. <clears throat> and aside from erasure, this is the most common form of representation that we found in the United States. Now, a much rare form of contestation, I didn't even give it its own category, um, a different form that I'm going to talk about is contestation. Now, this is Iolani Palace in Honolulu. And this is a site of erasure um, <clears throat> that BIPLAC people actively challenged. This is the palace where the U.S. staged a coup and conquered Hawaii in, eight, in the 1890s. The queen, who had enjoyed widespread support, was forced to abdicate and the U.S. took over. Today, we would call this a, flat, last, a false flag operation. The museum itself is mostly dedicated to the furniture and architecture of the palace and completely erases any hint of imperialism and conquest. In response, on the 50th anniversary of Hawaiian statehood, a group called Mapuina, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, decided to challenge the dominant narrative. Activists created a performance depicting four days in Hawaiian history. They tell the story of the coup from the Hawaiian perspective, and they tell the story in six scenes. Each scene is performed by one to two people, including some professional actors. The scenes include a Japanese cane worker who, who was exploited by American plantations, as well as Chinese voters who were disenfranchised by the Americans. Mapawina make explicit how Americans literally changed the electorate by requiring English literacy to vote, as well as the Bayonet Constitution, so named because it was forced upon the Hawaiians upon the threat of violence. Now, this is a wonderful example of speaking back to the white innocence, which is embedded in imperialist expansion. Unfortunately, it is not very common. Let me now move to a site of acknowledgement. This is from Sitka, Alaska. Now, Alaska May was in many ways unusual to the rest of the United States. It had widespread multiculturalism and also uh, some forms, multiple forms of acknowledgement. This is Castle Hill, um, where uh, Russians transferred ownership, um, where Russians transferred ownership of Alaska to the United States. And there, one of the plaques reads, in 1867, Russia sold Alaska to the United States. 
but was Alaska's theirs to sell? The original inhabitants of the land were plunged into a new era with the stroke of a pen. Now this may not seem like a big deal, but it is dramatically different from what we see throughout the rest of the United States. It is possible that the history of Russian colonization makes it easier to raise these issues as the U.S. was not the first to colonize this region. In this case, Russian colonization provides a buffer of sorts which serves to uh, support white innocence. I want to now analyze shifts in changes in cultural memory. Historic commemoration, of course, has changed dramatically in recent decades. <clears throat> and because most of the sites are older, they embody earlier ideas and modes of representation. Now, one place where we have seen dramatic shifts is in plantations and in missions. And I like to juxtapose these two institutions. Not only are they both sites of racial violence and coerced labor, but they were central to settler colonization. And both are treated as romantic tourist attractions. This is Middleton Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston was a leading site of the US slave trade. About 40% of all enslaved persons who entered the US came through Charleston. Prior to the cotton boom of the Deep South, thousands toiled in the fields of the Piedmont region. Not only was Charleston the wealthiest city in North America at its peak, but it was pivotal in the defense of slavery and secession. And again, it's important to see slavery as a territorial process. Slavery, like all forms of capitalism, required continual growth and expansion. The South knew that without westward expansion, their economic system would be imperiled. The Middletons had 19 plantations and owned over 3,600 human beings. Middleton Place became a national landmark because of its gardens. They claim that it's the oldest landscape garden in the United States. And it opened as a plantation museum in the 1960s. But Middleton only began discussing slavery in the year 2000 in response to the prodding of the black descendants of Middleton. Now this is called Eliza's House and it is the heart of the slavery exhibition. And it is an attempt to acknowledge the past, but it does so in a particularly limited way. Middleton acknowledges the past through a labor-centric narrative. Not only are territorial issues never mentioned, but in Middleton's version of slavery, there is no violence, terror, rape, or family separation. Instead, Middleton develops a labor narrative in several ways. First, it acknowledges the humanity of enslaved persons by consistently giving their names and positions culled from the ledgers. All exhibits even remotely related to labor feature signs that say something like, Toby worked at the blacksmith shop. Now this is in Eliza's house here, and this actually lists all the known persons that the Middletons had owned. The second way in which a labor narrative is developed is by acknowledging that the enslaved produced the wealth of South Carolina's planter class. They built the structures, grew the crops, were hired out, and tended the children. <coughs> this is certainly important, and I appreciate the emphasis on the creation of wealth. Making visible such power <coughs> dynamics should be a key goal of all historic preservation. The third component of the labor narrative is a continual emphasis on the skills and knowledge of enslaved persons, especially in terms of rice cultivation. As Judy Carney pointed out long ago, planters sought out enslaved persons from West Africa, Senegambia, and the Gold Coast precisely because of their knowledge of rice culture. And we hear this repeatedly. It wasn't just the backbreaking labor but the skills and knowledge of enslaved persons that created this landscape. At one point, a docent at Eliza's house was discussing slave labor and actually used the words economic contributions, to which one visitor replied, well, doesn't contribution imply some kind of willingness? <laughs> and that's exactly what we never hear about. There is no mention of the coercion, terror, and violence required to extract that labor and knowledge. We, we never hear about the regional post-bellum culture of lynchings, KKK, and Jim Crow. We just hear about the many skills and contributions of enslaved persons. 
While slavery is presented as an exploitive labor system, it is not a violent one. And in this way, some of those egregious elements of slavery are denied, and some measure of white innocence is preserved. Now the final site I discuss is the Santa Barbara Mission in Southern California. Long considered the crown jewel of the mission system, it was founded by the Franciscans in 1876. It is still owned and operated by the Franciscans, and they developed the museum. So it is their take on the past that I'm going to share with you. Now, as we all know, the Spanish ventured north from Mexico into Alta California and what is now the larger southwestern U.S. Spanish colonization was a joint venture of state, church, and private capital. Missions and presidios, or forts, were key institutions of conquest and colonization. The missions were the province of the church and had several purposes. First, they were intended to convert the indigenous population to Christianity. Second, they were vehicles for Spain's civilizing project. And third, the Indians were intended to be laborers to produce goods and wealth for the missions, church, and settlements. And finally, according to the Franciscans, missions were always intended to be temporary. The idea was that they would give the land back to the native peoples at some point. Perhaps when they had been sufficiently civilized? I don't know. <laughs> Needless to say, this never happened. And I think it's important to include, again, Spanish and Mexican colonization in this project because they illustrate how white supremacy is more widespread than just among Anglo-Americans. It was central to all European colonization and Mexico itself. After independence, in fact, in Mexico, they actively sought to control and contain nomadic indigenous populations. Now, the Franciscans have put great effort into updating the narrative of the mission. And this can be seen in greater acknowledgement of the Chumash, who are the local indigenous population. They include, for example, an exhibit showing the lineage of four native families that are still there today. And this is something that native people have asked for deliberately, like, we are still here. You know, please recognize that. Well, the majority of the mission focuses on the Franciscans themselves. There are a diversity of exhibits on Native people and their cultures. And there are genuine attempts to grapple with the racial and colonial past. For example, the Franciscans acknowledge the devastating nature of the missions, especially in terms of disease and agriculture. Uh, <clears throat> this is one from their museum. Along with plants and animals, Colonists also brought diseases which were no, not known in this area and from which the local community did not have immunity. These diseases caused epidemics and a tremendous loss of life. Now the role of disease in mass indigenous death has become an important question in recent years. Traditionally it has been portrayed as an unfortunate but inevitable consequence of an encounter or exchange. But more recent scholars have challenged this framing noting that it was an inevitable part of colonization, a very deliberate and orchestrated project of domination. In addition, the Franciscans <clears throat> admit that the, fission, that the mission system had upended native subsistence. They write here, European-style farming and ranching often resulted in the destruction of the natural habitat, which before contact supplied the Chumash with traditional foods and other resources. So this is taken just across the street from what is the mission today, and it's called like, I don't know, like Historic Park or something like that. And this is actually an irrigation system that Native people built or were forced to build to build under the Franciscans. And this is a close-up of what you see up on here. This is where the water runs through. And if you're not, I don't know, if, if you're not familiar with an arid environment, irrigation is everything in terms of transporting a landscape, in terms of introducing an entire new form of food production in what you can do. Um, and Native peoples there did not practice irrigation. Uh, they were primarily hunter and gatherers because it was a very productive kind of ecosystem and environment. So this is kind of an example, just the material form of how that change took place, or one of the ways in which it took place. <clears throat> now, even with these admissions, however, the Franciscans, Franciscans never actually take responsibility for native dispossession, forced relocation, or coerced labor. Despite clear evidence of native opposition, including a revolt in 1824, 
<clears throat> the, the Franciscans described themselves as the protectors of indigenous people against Spanish exploitation, which I'm sure they were at some times, given the nature of Spanish soldiers. But clearly, that is not the whole story. Consequently, the overall narrative is an unfortunate series of events, one with limited agency and no accountability. Instead, we get more economic contributions. Ultimately, the colonial forces would alter the landscape and set in motion changes that would affect traditional ways of living for the Chumash, but also lay the foundation for the rancho and agricultural economy of California. And here we can see clear parallels with the plantation. Not only the focus on economic contributions, but also on the cultivation of such beautiful grounds as tourist attractions on, that, on sites that were previously sites of racial violence. What does it mean that such sites are major tourist attractions today and tell such partial stories? What work does this beautiful landscape do in remembering the past? In closing, despite making significant progress in cultural memory, we're still deeply invested in preserving white innocence. We can't yet bring ourselves to tell the full story of US territorial uh, development, and thus we resort to monumental denial. Our investment in innocence remains entrenched and remains a key obstacle to a genuine and meaningful racial recognition. Thank you. Questions mm -hmm. for Laura? Well, you're no, I use that very deliberately, the term innocence, because to yeah. me, innocence is like, well, it's, um, it's a minimum threshold. So right, we can talk a lot about um, the white supremacist violence of the Klan and other kinds of organizations and historical moments, but in fact, today, I believe that this is the dominant logic that we have happening in terms of the white nation. So you're so right. It's like so much worse, but this is kind of like what is a minimum threshold and what is alive today. So many people today, would, I'm not a white supremacist. You know, I don't support the Klan. And the Klan in some ways stands in for this kind of like, it does a lot of ideological work in terms of minimizing other forms of racism and white supremacy, right? So that's why I choose it. Very deliberately, but yes, you're right. There are far <laughs> more <laughs> severe things happening. Joe, you've taken away evidence. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to say I think the use of white innocence is so great. And you, when you spoke at the beginning about the, I think you said the, the, the talking about using Carol Anderson talking about the the, um, the rage of denial, the denial of denial. Of the, oh, yeah. you know, and so it does seem like it makes me think of James Baldwin saying that you know belief in your own innocence. Know, turns you into a monster. It's like it's the it's the really the preservation of that innocence, which has this like extraordinarily violent side of it. But the, the other the question I actually was going to ask is, um, did you delineate between like you know uh, U.S. Park Service and state park systems and uh, you know Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture in terms of who who's responsible for the memorialization and who who's responsible for the, the creation and the text of these things and like is, are there differences or or, or is there I just am curious about internal contestation, or, or you know, how how the stuff gets continues to get produced, and what and what institutional forces are giving us different kinds of like acknowledgement or or multiculturalism or you know right. valorization. So um, all of these have to be approved by the National Park Service, and so the primary data source is actually what an individual like me and you wanted to create a uh, you know one me and you would write the text. Mm -hmm. For it and use that nomination. That's what we use for the primary source. But when you go to the actual places themselves, it is enormously uh, a huge difference. Um, one of the big groups that um, has done a huge amount of work is the Daughters of the American Revolution, uh, Pioneers of the Golden West, um, you know, Daughters of the Confederacy. These are the people that are actually doing a lot of this work that we see in there, much more so than actual state actors that are, do, that, are doing that. It's only the really large ones, like if you go to Monticello, that you'll find like you're having a state involved in producing this stuff. Uh, most of it is more, uh, it's not state actors. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Marcel, you know? Oh, <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> Can, can I ask a question related to that, which is the, the time frame of, so I, I don't know when this program starts and sort of 
what time, yeah, just what time range, and, and especially are there are there trends over time, or that there's not obvious trends in terms of like shifting from one of your four categories to the other over time, or? So um, this particular program, National Hess Denmark, historical mass, it kind of is the, um, it emerges out of several other strands within the federal government that were focused on preservation, commemoration, parks, and stuff like that. So it really gets going in the 1950s um, in significant, and it's in the 60s where we really get the bulk of these things get nominated. We just go on a frenzy of, of nominating uh, these um, of these sites. So you see it really in the 60s and 70s, most of it happened, and then it really slows down. You know, and if you look today, I mean, there's the national, nobody would, I mean, Harriet Tubman is getting a historic landmark, you know, I mean, so it's totally changed, you know, what we see, at least it's explicitly now multicultural, um, multicultural that, that we see th that is happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the question that bothers me actually quite a bit is, um, how do we prevent uh, a race war in the United States? That's a little question. Um, uh, persuaded by reason, they don't respond to warnings, threats. Apparently, this one people call it just shut up, endure the the constant insult of racism. And uh, of course, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so the question is, what do we do? See, this, this, it's, it's, it's good to have uh, information, but what do we do? <laughs> it's, it's I don't know question, how right? to prevent a race war. I would say one of the most important things that we can do is to stand up to the right and to show that we will not take silent what y'all are doing, right? So what we saw in Tennessee, I thought was enormously important, right? That those people stood up and there was such a backlash to let them know that there will be some check, there will be some response. I don't know that will prevent a race war though, but that's like the minimum thing that would need to happen. Over here and then Lynn. Mm -hmm. So your work was focused mostly on national monuments. I was wondering if you thought the results would be a little different if you looked at state monuments or city monuments as well. Okay, so um, I don't know the answer entirely to that. But I did, when I first started doing this, I actually first started in the city of Los Angeles. And I started the project initially like, oh, let me look, let me look and see how Mexican and indigenous history is represented in, in, in LA. And so I made a list of all those sites in Los Angeles. And I, when I visited all those sites in Los Angeles, and um, there's a, uh, a number particularly, even then it's really a small margin. It's, again, it's still shocking, even in a place like LA, like how like white-centric it is. But there was more. But then when I went to them, I really quick, that's what really led me to think, oh no, this isn't about indigenous people. This isn't about Mexicans. This is all about whiteness. <laughs> that's what it's about, you know. And that allowed me to develop like a larger kind of national view of this. But at the local and the state level, it's much easier to make progress in terms of telling different, you know, the federal government, national historic landmarks, because it's such a small set, it's a much more exclusive category. It takes a lot, it, you know, there's a, the lag time is much greater. Much things can happen much more quickly at the local and state level in terms that of change. That depends on the state. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well said, well said. Thanks, Laura. You started out uh, with education and talking about the war on the CRT. Um, and this past week, I've been teaching some of the same history, obviously, you know, through a separate colonial lens. Um, the U.S. war on Mexico, et cetera. And I had discussions in my class on immigration and farm workers with students about, there were several from Texas and many from California. And what they all came up with was the Alamo, the missions, <laughs> how they had to make little models yeah. of the missions and shoe boxes and mm -hmm. things like this. And, and then the Oregon students were like, we had to like make the Oregon Trail. Yeah. Um, so yeah. this is, tremendous work and I'm wondering um, have you been thinking about it in terms of education or yeah. like long term how do we because those K through 12 classrooms are so important so I don't know if you have curriculum thoughts or yes way beyond where you're at so we did a version of this project uh, we actually the highway highway markers in Oregon to look at that. And I've definitely been talking with people in the College of Ed and also um, Native Studies scholars focus on Oregon curriculum. Mm -hmm. And they've just been waiting for me to get the database up, <laughs> which I think is just about ready, <laughs> um, to get the database up so they can start using it in their, in their classrooms. Yeah. 
And you can see, so we have this one for all organ historic markers, and you can see how white supremacy and colonization is represented in them. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, I had to do the mission thing too. Is that a reason? Yeah, I couldn't yeah, tell. I'm, I'm just curious. One of the things that struck me, of course, your presentation of how these things are expressed today is, is interesting. I'm curious to know, is there any evidence of what they used to, how, how these things used to be expressed, or is this the original 1960s prose is still what's on the sign, signage in these places? Yeah, do thank we, you. Do we know much about movement, and if so, <laughs> what direction is it moving? So uh, most of the stuff we went with the original, right. but um, particularly like the missions and the, mm -hmm. the plantations, that is an example of change. They very deliberately are trying to change it. So I could look at the mission, uh, Santa Barbara, and their nomination materials, and they totally are in denial. But if you go there, you will find something different, you know. And so I wanted to, like, you know, kind of honor that to show the the dynamism that's happening there. That is, and that really plantations and missions, you know, it's just like in this day and age. And still it's shocking how many of them won't right. change, but <laughs> it is getting harder to maintain that. Right, yeah. but it's, in, it's all in the direction of recognizing, as opposed it to is. some of the bolts in the direction of saying, stop teaching our children to hate Okay, whatever. so there's a part different to that. I have a, a PhD student, and yeah. they're working on a dissertation in the Midwest where there actually is an organized movement to stop any further forms of historic commemoration, including ones that are focused like on economic, like, you know, uh, drivers, like, for, to promote tourism. They're just like, they want them all stopped. So they don't, they're not putting in counter arguments, they just stop it. It's anti-state, you know, no federal engagement, that's it. Yeah, that's happening. Mm -hmm. I just had a, just a quick question about the nominations. So were you able also to see when they were, if any were denied? And who gets God. left out, you know? No, that's so brilliant. No, no. You can see, like, some, there are national landmarks that get removed from the list, and you can find that information, but you don't see who's denied. No, oh my God, that'd be such, that's a whole other great project. <laughs> okay, Marcel and Paul. I mean, I was just going to brief on that. Yeah, I mean, that would be a fascinating archive mm -hmm. where you find that, because the government doesn't keep, as far as I know, at least online. Any record that denies. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask you, number one, this is amazing. Thank you so much. I was going to ask you, how did you manage sites that could cross multiple of your categories, you know, like biracial, uh, multicultural? Like the Alamo, for instance, is also a multicultural site because it's a mission. Right. And also, part of the representation is them saying, well, some of the Texians were actually ethnic Mexicans who fought, you know, so it's like it's doing all of these things. So does it rise to valorization because that's the predominant rhetoric? Okay, so in the case of valorization, a valorization, I, and I did not explain this, so thank you for asking, it could be one of any of those categories. Mm -hmm. Okay, a valorization. Well, it couldn't be acknowledgement. <laughs> but it could be any of those categories. So it's valorization, it could be any of the top three. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to ask about the category of acknowledgement. And I'm saying acknowledgement because all the evidence you showed was that it isn't acknowledgement. I mean, so <laughs> the bar is low. No, no, Try no. to be inclusive. <laughs> Did you find any, any that were doing acknowledgement that were truly acknowledging the histories that you're trying to? Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Wait, I, well, there is the Whitney Plantation, mm -hmm. is a national historic landmark. Um, and they talk about the aspects of slavery that are generally erased. It, is, it was a plantation in Louisiana that was created to actually foreground the, enslaved, the enslaved, slavery. slavery. Uh -huh. That's its primary mission. right? So it's like totally out there compared to um, everything but else. And there's some on the Underground Railroad. Uh -huh. There's a lot on the Underground Railroad. Uh -huh. I went to one up in Vermont, and my um, Sophia Ford, my G GE, is going next week to one in Ohio. There's a whole bunch of men in Ohio, um, right across the river. So yes, there, there were, there's, a, there's a few. And it's mostly, just from what you're saying, mostly aimed at slavery. It's not really talking about okay, settler yeah. colonialism. Super great point, yeah. right. So when we look at the data as a whole, we are much more apt in the United States to acknowledge slavery than we are settler colonization. We are completely incapable 
of acknowledging that completely, you know. Um, I went, before I really focus on um, NHLs, I uh, went to Sand Creek Massacre site in Colorado, mm -hmm. um, which is not an NHL. It has a different kind of designation to it. And there, the NPS, the, the ranger there told me, this is the only site that is acknowledged as a massacre mm -hmm. in U.S. history mm -hmm. against indigenous mm -hmm. people. It is the only one. Mm -hmm. And he's telling me this. And then he's also telling me, and again, I did more research about it, against the local reaction that people had against that, right? By local veterans, by other people in the local community about, you know, in how their history was being portrayed. So um, that's like really interesting one, just like we can't even do that. So let me interrupt at the moment. We're just after one o'clock. I just want to pause for a moment so if people uh, have to leave, they can leave and thank Laura and then